We're going to be spending the next five weeks looking at the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a number of reasons why I want us as a church to journey through this subject matter of heaven together. And the reason I've chosen this series to go through together. First of all, there's a lot of confusion. I don't think I'm enlightening anyone here this morning to know that there's a lot of confusion regarding the topic of heaven. Now, there's certainly many books and resources about heaven that is out there. The question is, is it right and is it good? And so in the midst of confusion, I felt it necessary to spend some time thinking about the kingdom of heaven together. There's also naturally a lot of curiosity, this side of heaven, to what will it be like, and what will the experience be, and what can we anticipate, and how do we live in light of this promise of heaven. There's a third reason why I've chosen to study the kingdom of heaven together, that for the last year and a half, this idea of heaven has become deeply personal for me and my family as we navigate the waters of thinking about the hope of heaven in light of what we've experienced here on earth. And so in a way, the next five weeks is a, a deep dive into what our personal journey and discovery of heaven has been as a family to discover the truths of heaven and maybe for some of us in a brand new way. Now heaven, after all, is a idea of spending eternity with God. So the idea of taking five weeks to study heaven might seem like an overwhelming task. Well, rest assured, we are. this is not going to be the only time uh, that we spend together in looking at heaven together. There will be many times throughout the year that we will look at this topic of heaven together. But for this morning, as we launch into this new series, we're going to be looking at what is known as the beginning of Jesus's farewell discourse in John chapter 14. And we're going to be simply looking at the first five verses of John 14, verses 1 through 5 of the 14th chapter of John. In this farewell discourse, Jesus has just finished the Last Supper with his disciples He's about to be arrested. It is the night of his crucifixion. And in the midst of this situation and circumstance, where the disciples are feeling like utter failures, the movement has failed, their leader is leaving, they are wondering what in the world will happen next to us. It is in the midst of great doubt and great trouble and the great unknown, that Jesus speaks these words to them. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. This is the very word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you there myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And on this Lord's day, the grass withers and we're reminded that the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, no, the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Where do we get our idea of heaven? Right? The idea of playing harps, singing and floating on clouds, an eternal worship service that never ends. Sounds fun, huh? Where do we get our ideas of heaven? Maybe for some of you, you got your idea from heaven from stories that you're, were told to you as a child by a mother or a father. Maybe for some of you, your ideas of heaven are, have originated from what you've seen in the movies. Maybe your ideas and concepts of heaven have come from the great works of literature that you've read throughout your life. Maybe if we're honest, some of our ideas of heaven have come from Google or Wikipedia. We all get our ideas from heaven or about heaven from different sources. But the question that I want to ask you this morning and through the context of this series is when was the last time you actually got your idea from heaven, from the word of God itself, particularly Jesus? And so what I want to do this morning and for the next five weeks is I want to look at what does the word of God have to say about heaven? Not what culture says about heaven, not what we've seen in the movies or read in the great works of literature, not what we've heard as a child or what we think heaven is like, but I want us to look at the word of God. And particularly this morning, I want to look at the very words of Jesus. I think if there's any place that we can start our study together about heaven, I want to know what does Jesus say that might be a good place for us to start. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of great curiosity to what heaven will be like, we begin our journey of heaven together with what Jesus has to teach us, his church, about this kingdom called heaven. Jesus tells us three things about heaven that are absolutely foundational in our study and understanding of heaven. Three foundational truths right here in the first five verses of John chapter 5. The first foundational truth that Jesus teaches us concerning heaven is found in verses 2 and 3. He teaches us that heaven is a real place. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you and that it's in my father's house where there are many rooms. You see, Jesus teaches us first and foremost that heaven is a real place. It's the father's house where there are many rooms. You see, there is a great temptation in the church, unfortunately, to over-spiritualize heaven. Over-spiritualize heaven to the point where heaven seems so abstract, so ethereal, and so disconnected from everyday life. But that's not what Jesus does, does he? Jesus teaches heaven by using earthly terminology. He says it's a house. It's my father's house, and it has many rooms. The word place in the Greek means a dwelling place, an actual place where you will dwell and live. You see, what Jesus teaches us about heaven in verses 2 and 3 is that it is a real place with real people, and it is the father's house. What is so significant about the understanding of house? 
You see, the people of God have always longed for a house. Ever since they had been banished from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, for all intents and purposes, were homeless. That was their home. And they were banished from the garden as exiles. And forever the people of God would be searching for what? A home. Well, God in his providence provides a home where they can once again connect with the living God. And it's called a tabernacle. We call it a mobile home. But later, God becomes frustrated and says, I no longer want my home, my house to be mobile. And he comes to Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he says, I want a permanent home, a permanent house. And it's called the temple of God that Solomon would eventually build. You see, the picture of heaven that we get in the Old Testament is always that of a house where God can meet and dwell with his people. And so when John or John records Jesus' words here that heaven is a house, the Father's house, the people of God would have resonated. Finally, a house that is prepared, a permanent house that is prepared for you and me. It is not an over-spiritualized, abstract, dwelling that is disconnected from reality, but the kingdom of heaven is a real place, a real concrete place that is being prepared by Jesus for you and for me, a real peace place with real people where we will live and work and laugh and play and learn and worship and not disconnected from Reality, And then the next few weeks, we'll dive more into what will we do in this very real place, the house of the Lord, in which we are invited as the children of God. But I want you to think about this real place for a second, but think about it in the context of this world. I want you to think for a second of the greatest place you've ever seen, the most beautiful place you've ever experienced in earth. And then think about this. God allows every single person without exception to experience those places here on earth, whether they believe in him or not, whether they acknowledge him or not. And the reason I share that with you is imagine if God allows those that he calls his enemies to experience such beauty. What will that place look like for those that he calls his sons and his daughters? That is heaven, a real place with real people where we will live and learn and love and work and worship. Heaven is a real place. It is the Father's house, and that's where he invites us to go. But not only do we see here in John chapter 14 that heaven is a real place, Jesus also teaches that heaven is the longing of our hearts. We see in verse 4 and 5 this interesting interaction and dialogue between Jesus and Thomas. It's always Thomas, right, who's pushing back. If you were here for Easter, we talked about Thomas being the, the doubter, the doubter of the group. And Jesus has this interesting interaction with Thomas where Jesus says this, Thomas, you know the way, you know where this place is, heaven, and you know the way to get there. And Thomas goes, what? 
We don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about. What's going on here? This is fascinating. Do not miss this. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly rebuking the disciples this way. Jesus is constantly saying, you think you know, but you don't know. You think you believe, but you don't believe. But it's here in John 14, and it's the only place recording in the Gospels where Jesus reverses the dialogue and says, you think you don't know, but you do know. What's happening? It's profound. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus says, you think you don't know, but you do know the way. And this is what Jesus is referring to. The longing for a home and the longing for a father has been placed in your heart. And it is the very longing of your soul. The very thing you have craved after and longed for is in your heart. It is Solomon himself who says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 that he, God, has placed eternity in man's hearts. What is Solomon talking about here? Solomon in for, for chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes has just told us that all life is vanity. That we work and we live and we play and it's all vanity at the end of the day. We live and then we die. The sun rises and the sun sets. But God has placed something in each one of our hearts that longs for something more. If you're here this morning, you know what I'm talking about. You go through this life and at times throughout our lives, maybe even here this morning, you go, there has to be something more. There has to be something else. And if we look at how we have designed our lives, it is all striving for and chasing after something more, something better, a world beyond this world, a life beyond this life. And it is the eternity that God has placed in our hearts, each and every one of us. And that's what Jesus means when he turns to Thomas and says, you know exactly what I mean. You know exactly where I'm going. You know exactly the way because your whole heart has been designed to crave after it. You see, God has created each one of us with a longing for a better world, a longing for eternity, a longing to say that this world cannot be the only thing that there is. And what Jesus is saying to Thomas is so profound. All of the homes that you've been looking for are found and answered in this home. All of the fathers you've been craving and looking for are met and found in this father. He, it, this is the home and the father that your heart has always craved. Augustine said it best when he said, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You know the way. Your heart longs for it. Your heart longs for a world beyond this world. Your heart longs for a life beyond this life. A life that in which you can say, there is no fear, there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no regret. Your heart longs for it. You know the way. You know exactly what Jesus is speaking to. And remember point one. Heaven is a place. It is a home. What does it mean to be home? It is the place that you long for the most. 
A home is the place that has an open door. Uh, the home is a place of unconditional love. The home is a place where you are always welcomed without exception. A home is the place that restlessness is no more. The home is a place where you can rest easy. A home is the place where no more can you say the expectations of this life will not be met. It is the place of no more pain, no more disease, no more suffering, no more disappointments. The home is the place of no more tears. C.S. Lewis said it best, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. The fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. The mere fact that your heart longs for something more is proof that there is an eternity that awaits us. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is the place that your heart longs for. And then lastly, heaven is a future promise, yet a present comfort. Now you might be saying to yourself this morning, Pastor, this is not the most practical of messages. I mean, the idea of the hope of heaven and the promise of heaven is something that comforts me on my deathbed, but I've got real problems today. I have mortgages to pay and, and bills to satisfy. I have kids that don't listen and are disobedient. I have marriages and relationships that are, are broken. I have, I have pain and suffering that is unbearable. I have disappointments at work. I have a job that is absolutely overwhelming. I need something practical today. The hope of heaven just seems like something that is so far out or will be a comfort on my deathbed, but not a comfort today, not so fast. What does Jesus say to his disciples? In verse one, he says what? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to men that are dealing with a current crisis. These are not men that are on their deathbed. Jesus is on his deathbed. They're in the here and now. They're wondering, how are we going to provide? How are we going to survive? What are we going to do today and tomorrow? They are dealing with real life circumstances and real life problems. And it is this context in which Jesus gives them what? the hope of heaven. It is not a hope for our deathbeds, but it is a hope for the here and now. It is, yes, a future promise, but it is a current present comfort right here and right now. And when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, it is a command from Jesus himself. He is commanding your heart and my heart to be comforted and to no longer be troubled. It's as if Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, troubled heart, stop it. Stop it. What right does Jesus have to say in the midst of our pain? in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of what we are going through right now to stop it unless he has the only answer to comfort a troubled heart. Jesus will move from verse 1 in telling his disciples to not let their heart be troubled and he will give them the only antidote to a troubled heart when he says, 
believe in God, believe also in me. What Jesus is saying there is believe in the one who was dead but now alive. Believe in the one who goes and prepares a place for you on your behalf. That if I was dead and now alive, surely I can work in the midst of your pain and your suffering and your troubled life. Surely I can work through anything that life has thrown your way. I was dead, but now alive. And contrary to what the world tells us, you want to answer the desires of your heart? Believe in yourself. Jesus says to answer the desires of your heart, stop believing in yourself and believe in me. Do you see the paradox of Christianity? The world says you want your heart's desire. You want a life beyond this life. You want a world beyond this world. You want eternity. What does the world say? Believe and trust in yourself. But Jesus says you want the answer and the longings of your heart to be fulfilled, stop believing in yourself and trust in me, the one who is dead but now alive. You see, the only way to comfort your heart in your current problems and suffering and circumstances is to stop believing that you prepare your own way but believe that there is one who has been raised from the dead that prepares a place for you. It's our only hope in life and in death. Believe in me, the one who is dead, but now alive. See, the truth of heaven in the future is the only absolute promise that is utterly transformative to the here and to the now. Winston Churchill, prior to his death, the great prime minister of the United Kingdom, planned out his entire funeral. And one of the things he wanted in his funeral was the most unusual and unlikely of endings. Scott McKnight, in his book, The Heaven Promise, recalls the funeral and the ending moments of Winston Churchill's funeral. He says, years ago, Winston Churchill planned his own funeral, and he did so with the hope of resurrection and eternal life, which he firmly believed in. And so he instructed after the benediction that a bugler would be positioned high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and that bugler would play taps, the universal sign that the day is over. The sound of taps is the sound of death, and the notes can be sobering and melancholic. But Winston Churchill didn't want the last notes of the funeral service to be taps. But then came a very dramatic moment that Churchill had instructed. A second bugler was to be placed opposite of the dome in St. Paul's Cathedral. And instead of taps, he was supposed to play Reveille, the universal sign that a new day had dawned and that it was time to arise. That was Churchill's testimony that at the end of history, the last note will not be taps for those that are found in Christ, but the last notes will be revelry. Brothers and sisters, you are here this morning, and there is a wide array of emotions. 
For some of you, you are experiencing the emotion of eagerness and anticipation, thinking that the prize of life is right around the corner. For some of you, you are gripped with the emotion of fear, perpetual fear of life, of the unknown, of tomorrow. For some of you, you are gripped with the emotion of utter sadness and despair. Just the thought of waking up this morning was almost too much to handle. For some of us, you are gripped with the emotion of regret, of thinking what this life has amounted to. Unmet expectations and failure is so great and so high, it pushes you down. And although each one of us are experiencing a different emotion, the one thing that remains the same for every single one of us is all of those emotions are a screaming out from the heart of something more and something better and something greater. And I am here to tell you this morning, do not miss this, that the only thing that will satisfy a yearning and crying heart is the one who has come to satisfy the longings of our heart, Jesus Christ himself. He says this morning to you, stop, stop that troubled heart by believing in me, the one who is dead but now alive. Stop, stop that troubled heart by believing in me, the one who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Stop, stop that troubled heart and believe in me, the one who prepares a place for you in my Father's house that if you believe in me, has your name on it. Stop, believe and trust in me. And in this glorious promise of heaven, so that if you are found in Jesus Christ this morning, one day at your funeral, they might play taps, but Jesus, he'll play revelry and he'll say, son, daughter, it's time to get up.